Welcome back from lunch. And uh, this is our first workshop following the lunch hour. Our speaker this afternoon is Scott LaPierre, and he's going to be speaking to us on the topic, Avoiding Hypocrisy in Parenting. This is his first uh, session at the conference. He has another workshop in Auditorium C at 3.30 today, if you'd like to attend that. Scott LaPierre is senior pastor of Woodland Christian Church and the author of Marriage, God's Way, which is a biblical recipe for healthy, joyful, Christ-centered relationships. He spends time with his wife, Katie, their six children, some of whom you'll see here today, and with his church family. He studies and teaches God's word, speaks on marriages, on marriage at churches, conferences, and most recently, the Christian Heritage marriage retreat held in February. We're delighted that he can be here today with his family, and he's able to share with us what God has laid on his heart. Please welcome Scott LaPierre. Thank you, Mr. Mublot. Thank you. Good afternoon. If you didn't get a handout by chance, please raise your hand, and one of my children will run them around to you. Just raise your hand and hold that up, and my children will get a handout to you that you'll need during the message, and Ray, Ricky, Johnny, just kind of stay out there as new people come in and give them handouts as they, as they enter. Keep your hands up. I'll just go ahead and open us in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time, for the privilege of digging into your word and seeing one of these aspects of parenting, uh, that we can become hypocrites in our children's eyes, and what a danger that is to build resentment in our children toward us. And so I pray that you would just give us insight into your word and how to prevent that from happening, and that we would raise our children uh, in the way that you know would be best, just embracing those principles that are contained in Scripture. Thank you for each person here. pray that you help us to just remove distractions from our minds. Focus on you and the things that you want to say to us during this time. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. So yes, that's my wife Katie. Three of our six children are kind of running around, and hopefully you have a handout. The New Testament is clear that one of the main purposes of the Old Testament is to provide us with examples that we can learn from. Romans 15.4, it says, Whatever things were written before, referring to the Old Testament, were written for our learning. 1 Corinthians 10.6, These things, referring to the Old Testament, became our examples. 1 Corinthians 10.11, These things happened to them, referring to the Israelites as examples, and were written for our admonition or for our instruction. So because of that, because the Old Testament provides us with these examples or illustrations, I like to use it when I'm teaching. We're going to discuss avoiding hypocrisy in parenting, and the Old Testament can lay a foundation for us as we look at King David and his relationships with his sons. And so if you have a Bible, if you would like to turn to 2 Samuel 13, please. Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel 13. As you turn there, just to save time, we don't have time to read all the verses. We're going to be briefly surveying a few different accounts. Let me just explain what took place. David had a son named Amnon. And Amnon was sinfully lusting after his half-sister, Tamar. He didn't take his thoughts captive, and he didn't, he didn't control his mind. And so he lusted after her so much, he actually made himself sick. And he started losing weight. And then a, a friend of his came along and gave him this plan to have his way with her. And so then Amnon overtook his, his half-sister, Tamar. And then David learned about it. And I want you to see how David responded in verse 21. So look at 2 Samuel 13, 21 to see how David responded when he learned the news about what happened between Amnon and Tamar. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And really that's it. 
and just says that David got angry. We don't have to read anything else because there's nothing else discussing anything that he did because there's no record of it. And just consider for a moment that this actually happened to his own daughter, but there's no record of David punishing Amnon whatsoever. Now, according to God's law, what should David have actually done with his son Amnon? Anyone? He should have executed him. He should have executed him. That's right. So here's what ended up happening. Tamar, she felt very violated and alone, as you could understand. You'd expect her at this time to go to her father, David, and be comforted and consoled by him. But I suspect that Tamar knew that her father wouldn't do anything. She knew how indulgent he was toward his sons. And so Tamar went to go live with her brother Absalom. When Tamar was with Absalom, as Tamar tells Absalom what happens, and Absalom looks on his sister and sees how how she's been violated and the grief and the mourning that she's experiencing, Absalom becomes furious with his brother, with his half-brother Tamar. And because David failed to do anything, Absalom decided to take matters into his own hands. And let me ask you right now to remember what Absalom did. Absalom took Amnon, and he got him drunk, and then he had him murdered. Now, David learned what happened to his, to his son Amnon, or he learned how Absalom murdered Amnon. And so Absalom ran away. Go ahead and skip to verse 38. Verse 38. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur. He was there three years, and over those three years, it says, King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. So after these three years had passed, the pain of Amnon's death had subsided, and so David starts missing his son Absalom, and he wants to be reconciled with him, but guess what David doesn't want to do with him? He doesn't want to punish him. He wants to be reunited with him, but he doesn't want to punish him for his sins. And so David's indulgent attitude that he first showed toward Amnon is now being repeated with his son Absalom. Look at 2 Samuel 14, verse 33. Turn one chapter to the right to 2 Samuel 14, 33 to see what took place when David and Absalom are finally reunited. So Joab went to the king, this is to David, and told him, and when he, this is David, had called for Absalom. So this is the first time they've seen each other in these three years since Absalom murdered Amnon. And it says, Absalom came to the king, to David, <clears throat> bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, before his father, and then the king kissed Absalom. And so what this signified was the reconciliation between father and son here. But again, you notice that there's absolutely no what? There's no punishment. There's no discipline whatsoever, and this failure ended up causing terrible problems. Absalom is back in David's good graces, which is what he wanted, because he had this plan to overthrow the throne, steal the kingdom from his father, and he couldn't do that while he was exiled to some other country. And so now Absalom is back home in his home country. He's in David's good graces. He's able to carry out his plan, and so he steals the hearts of the people. He turns the nation against his father. David ends up having to escape the land. Absalom even ends up taking David's wives for himself. And then this is one of the lowest moments of David's life. His men actually had to go out to battle against David's own son. And just as a father, if you put yourself in that situation and imagine what this was like for David to see his men having to go out to battle against his son like this, would have been unimaginably difficult, but here's the thing. By this point, of course, David knows the problems associated with not punishing Amnon. And of course, he knows the problems associated with not punishing Absalom. So as difficult as it would be, he's going to obey God's word, and he's going to command his soldiers to execute 
Absalom. Carry out this judgment against this man who had divided the nation and caused all this harm. Because Absalom's existence just threatens the nation, threatens to cause further problems. Of course, that's what David's going to communicate to his men, right? No, look at 2 Samuel 18.5. Turn to 2 Samuel 18.5 to see what David says to his men right when they're about to go out to battle against his son Absalom. 2 Samuel 18.5, the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. All the people heard when the king, when David gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. Now I read this and this is what I think. I look at these words and I say, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This is David's instructions for his men. Consider for a moment everything that Absalom has done up to this point. He is a murderer. He is a rapist. He has taken the throne from his father. He has divided the nation. He has attempted to, to take his father's life. And David looks at him and says what? Go easy on him. He's just what? He's just a kid. Take it easy on him. He's just a kid. There's a real danger associated with viewing our children too sentimentally. There's a danger associated with looking at our children and not being able to view them objectively or see their sinfulness because perhaps we're too endeared to them. And David is probably the best example of that in Scripture, the way that he viewed his children too, too sentimentally, and I think that was cause for much of his indulgence toward them. Just to save some time, instead of having you turn someplace else, I'm going to tell you about one more situation with one of David's sons, or tell you about one more of David's sons is how I should word it. That son is Adonijah. David had another son named Adonijah, and Adonijah decided that he was going to be king, even though David had not chosen Adonijah to become king, and even though God, more importantly, had not chosen Adonijah to become king. And so the obvious question is, how could this young man be so arrogant? How could this young man be so selfish that he grows up and he decides that he's going to take the throne for himself, regardless of what his father David, the king, or regardless of what God wanted? And the answer to that is given in 1 Kings 1.6. It says that David had never rebuked Adonijah at any time by saying, why have you done so? Now you can tell from that little account that I told you about Adonijah that he was a terrible brat, a terrible brat growing up. You can just look back on his childhood and imagine what that was like. But yet we can read this verse that says David had never even asked him why he was doing the things he was doing. And so when you say, how could Adonijah turn out like this? How could he end up like this, making this sort of claim to the throne, this sort of arrogance? Well, this is why. David had never even questioned him, not so much as punished him. David had never even asked him why he did these things. So Adonijah's life came to an end when he manipulatively went to Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, and asked to have one of David's uh, concubines for himself. And so he attempts to take the throne. Uh, Solomon knew that he was trying to steal the throne, so he ends up killing him. All right, now with that, with that understanding, we're looking at Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah. We've laid our, our foundation here for the message. Here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to recount some situations from Scripture, and I want you to give me the name of the individuals that I'm discussing. I'm going to describe some situations, and I want to tell you the man involved in each of these situations. So a man saw a woman that did not belong to him. He took that woman anyway, and who am I talking about? I could be talking about David with Bathsheba. I could be talking about Amnon with Tamar. I could be talking about Absalom with David's wives. Even though Adonijah didn't succeed, he still tried to take a woman that didn't belong to him too. Here's a second situation. 
A man gave another man an invitation. This man invites this other man out, and then he gets the man drunk, and after that, he has someone murder the man. Now, who am I talking about? Could be talking about David with Uriah. I could be talking about Absalom with Amnon. And this brings us to lesson one on your handouts. Lesson one on your handouts. Resist temptation so you don't see your sins in your children. Resist temptation so you don't see your sins in your children. So think about this. David said, I don't care if that woman is married. If I want her, I'll take her. Amnon said, I don't care if that woman is my half-sister. If I want her, I'll take her. Absalom said, I don't care if those are my father's wives. If I want them, I'll take them. Adonijah said, I don't care if Abishag is my father's concubine. If I want her, I'll take her. David, he looked very cunning when he was plotting his sexual sin with Bathsheba. Amnon looked very cunning when he was plotting his sexual sin with Tamar. David looked very cunning when he was plotting the murder of Uriah. Absalom looked very cunning when he was plotting the murder of Amnon. And so here's the thing. David was a very godly man. He was obedient in most areas of his life, but these are the areas where he sinned, and then he had to watch the elements of these sins be passed along to his sons. He had to see these sins committed, the sins that he committed showing up in the lives of his sons. His sons looked just like him. Now, David, he suffered a lot in his lifetime. You just think about the rebellion of his sons that we discussed. You think about the sons that were murdered that I just discussed. You think about the people that betrayed him and turned against him, whether it was Saul or whether it was Ahithophel. All of the pain that he experienced. But I wonder if there was anything worse for David than having to look at his sons and see his sins in their lives. Having to look at his children and recognize that it was his sins that were being, had been passed along to them. Because it's one thing when our children sin. But it's another thing when our children sin, but we feel like they learned it from where? When they, we feel like they learned it from us. Here's a quote that I try to remember in my parenting. <clears throat> a man never sees the worst of himself until it reappears in his child. A man never sees the worst of himself until it reappears in his child. There are lots of great reasons as parents for us to be pursuing holiness in our Christian lives. I mean, one of the most obvious reasons to pursue holiness is so we'd be pleasing to the Lord. That's what he commands. We want to serve him. We want to be faithful to him. That alone would be a good enough reason to pursue holiness, resist temptation, resist sinning. But one other great reason is so that we don't have to see our sins passed along to our children. Let me ask you an interesting question. Why didn't David punish his, son, his sons? If you think in the Old Testament about the greatest leaders— I mean, David comes to mind. Probably Moses and David above any, anyone else. I, they're probably the two, in terms of sheer leadership, you really can't beat David and Moses. There's no other men like them. And so the obvious question is, how could such a great leader like him, how could a man who had led other men into battle and, and, and accumulated countless victories have been such a great leader over the nation and on the battlefield and in these other areas of life be such a poor leader at home, such a poor leader over his sons, and I think the reason is when you look at David, you see this, he lacks this willingness to take charge of his children. He lacks a willingness to demand obedience from them. He lacks a willingness to punish them. And the reason is probably that David's sons deserve the death penalty, but David knew that who else deserved the death penalty? 
David looks at his sons, and how can he, who had committed so many crimes himself, deserving the death penalty, carry out that punishment against his sons, who in a sense were simply following his example? And so I think David couldn't punish his sons because of his own sin-filled past. He sees what he's done, but he, or he sees what his, well, he sees what he's done, and it prevents him from punishing his sons when he sees what they've done. He feels like he lacks the moral authority to punish them because of his own failings. When Absalom rapes Tamar, David's angry, but he takes no action because of his own sexual sin. When Absalom murders Amnon, David does nothing because he too knows that he's a murderer. And this teaches us one of the greatest lessons that we can learn from the life of David. I'd say if you read and memorized all of 1 and 2 Samuel and into the beginning of 1 Kings, this is one of the greatest lessons that you can take away. Lesson two on your handouts, don't let past sins prevent you from disciplining your children. Lesson two, don't let past sins prevent you from disciplining your children. When you've done the things that David's done, understandably, you're going to feel an amount of shame. We can only imagine the guilt that David experienced for the rest of his life regarding the sins that he had committed. But he handled this guilt and and shame the wrong way. He allowed it to make him very indulgent and soft toward his sons. Here's what David could have said to his sons, and I would say, if you sit here today and you struggle with some sins you've committed in the past and they hinder you from disciplining or punishing your children here's what you could say to your children too i know the danger associated with not restraining yourself from sin i don't want you to make the same mistakes as me i have paid this terrible price for my sins i don't want you to have to pay that price too because here's what real love does real love you know it might get down on our knees and look our children in the eyes and say i want you to be a better man than me I want you to be a better woman than me. I don't want you to commit the same sins that I've committed. That's why I'm disciplining you for this. I am familiar with what you've done. I have done this too. And that is why I'm punishing you for this. I want you to grow up to be better than me. There are numerous proverbs about disciplining our children. Here's just two of them. Proverbs 13, 24, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. So it actually says that failure to discipline... I mean, some, the world could look on at David and say, oh, he's just a loving father. You know, he didn't discipline his sons, and it was just motivated by this love that he felt for them. What does Scripture say if you don't discipline your sons? That's not love, that's, that's hatred. Proverbs 19, 18, Chasten your son while there is hope. Do not set your heart on his destruction. God's word actually says if we don't discipline our children, we're setting them up to be destroyed. Now, here's why I'm reading those verses to you. I suspect you're familiar with them. I'm reading them because neither of them and no other verses in all of Scripture dealing with discipline discuss the sin-filled past of the parents. There's nothing conditional regarding punishing or disciplining our children. If you're a parent, this is what God commands regardless of what you have or haven't done. But here's the thing. I know what you're saying. You're listening to this and you're saying, well, isn't it hypocrisy to punish our children for sins that we have committed? Isn't it hypocrisy to hold our children to a higher standard than we held ourselves? I thought you're going to stand up here and tell us how to avoid hypocrisy in parenting. It's telling us, you're basically telling us how to be hypocrites in our parenting. The only hypocrisy is when you hold your children to a standard that you don't currently keep. That's the only way to be a hypocrite. 
when you hold your children to a standard that you don't currently keep. There's a world of difference between holding your children to a standard that you didn't keep in the past versus holding them to a standard that you keep now. Because it is hypocrisy to hold our children to a standard that we don't currently keep, but it is not hypocrisy to hold our children to a standard that we keep now as a result of the gospel in our lives, as a result of the, of the gospel working in our hearts and giving us victory over sin. One of the most important parenting lessons we can learn from David is our past are no excuse for not disciplining our children. But here's the other side of this, or, or you could say here's what does make us hypocrites. If we're going to punish our children when they do something wrong, then what do we need to make sure of? We need to make sure that we're not doing those things ourselves. If we're going to expect our children to do certain things, we need to make sure that we're doing those things. If we expect our children to see the seriousness of their sin, we need to make sure that we see the seriousness of our own sin. If there's some spiritual fruit that we crave or covet in our children's lives, we look at our children and you're just rattling off the fruit that you want to see from him or her. Well, you better make sure that that fruit is shown in your life. And this brings us to lesson three on your handouts. Avoid hypocrisy in parenting by lesson three, modeling what you want from your children. On your handouts, avoid hypocrisy in parenting by lesson three, modeling what you want from your children. I'd like to explain this lesson by looking at a passage in Romans 2, if you'd please turn there. We won't turn back to 2 Samuel. Turn to Romans 2, please. Uh, a passage that can apply very well to parenting. The first verse might sound a little confusing, so I'm going to try to explain it here in two parts, break it in half. Romans 2.1, Paul says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. So Paul says we're inexcusable, or we're without excuse when we judge others, because the fact that you judge someone else is revealing that you know that what they're doing is wrong. And that leaves you without excuse. Because you have demonstrated through your judgment that you know that what that person is doing is wrong. Now, if we apply this to parenting, the point is if we know it's wrong for our children to do it, then we better make sure we know that it's wrong for, for us to do it. Exactly. And this is what Jesus meant in Matthew 7, 1 and 2 when he said, Judge not that you be not judged, for, this, for with what judgment you judge, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. Now, I think we all know these are probably the most misunderstood verses in all of Scripture, right? People have to rip these verses kicking and screaming out of context and say that you can never judge anyone or never judge anything. That's not what's being said here. Paul is saying that if you judge something as wrong, you better make sure you're not doing it yourself because you're going to be judged with that same standard that you used in judging others. If you look and say that it's wrong for someone else to do it, you better recognize that it's wrong for you to do it. And so to apply this to parenting, if you think it's sin in your child's life, then you better think it's sin in your life. If you think your children shouldn't be doing something, then you need to make sure that you don't do it. If you tell your child, stop whining, stop complaining, and then you walk around the house all day complaining about the weather, complaining about your job, complaining about your neighbors, complaining about your friends, complaining about your spouse. If we do this, what are our children going to think as they get older and they look back on the fact that we were regularly commanding them or punishing them for complaining, but then they think about us and they just picture us walking around regularly complaining, regularly whining about things. What are, parent, what are our children going to think about us? They're going to end up thinking that we're hypocrites. They could potentially become very resentful toward us. Look at the rest of Romans 2.1. Paul says, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And so Paul says you condemn yourself because you say others shouldn't do these things, and then you practice them yourself, which is a way to condemn yourself. And taking this back to parenting, 
disciplining our children, it means punishing them for behaviors that we have said are wrong. But if we discipline our children for something that we do, our children are going to think that we're hypocrites. If we kind of continue with that passage from Matthew 7 again, Matthew 7, 1 through 1 and 2, and then after that, Jesus says, why do you look, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? Or how could you, we could just say, why do you look at the speck in your child's eye? But you don't consider the plank in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, or we could say, how can you say to your child, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly enough to remove the speck from your brother's. It says brother's eye, but we could very easily say your child's eye. And so Paul, Paul doesn't tell us, or excuse me, Jesus doesn't tell us not to take that speck away. That's not what he's saying. He just says you need to make sure that before you take that speck away, you take that plank away. Just like God wouldn't say to us, don't punish your children. You need to punish them, but you, just, you need to discipline them. You just need to first make sure that you have disciplined yourself. Let me share something that's taken place with my wife Katie and I. There have been these times, like I'm sure uh, have taken place with all of you, where we have been frustrated with our children. And we're sitting back, possibly after they went to bed, and we're reflecting on the day, and we're talking about some of their behaviors that have disappointed us. And if we're going to be honest with each other when we're talking about our children, this is what we have to say. They're acting like us. They look like us when they do that. We don't like it when they do this, but they got this from us. There have been parents. I've heard them complain about their children. And while they're, and sometimes you can almost see them getting angry or more frustrated about the things that their children have, as they describe these things that their children have done. And while they're talking, what can you almost see through the, the words as they describe their children? You can almost see those people. They look like their children. They're describing their children, but you can tell that those children inherited those behaviors, those frustrations from the parents themselves. If you were really honest with the person, you could say, this is how you act. This is what you do. Your child got this from you. That's what Katie and I have had to honestly say to each other at times. If you go back to Romans 2, Paul provides a very scathing critique of the kind of hypocrisy that we want to make sure that we avoid in our parenting. Skip to verse 20, Romans 2 verse 20. Paul says, an instructor of the foolish. Now, in a sense, this is us, because God's word says that our children are what? What's bound up in them? Foolishness. So he's talking about, Paul is talking about instructors. We are teachers of foolish people, since scripture says that our children are foolish. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, we're definitely teachers, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. So we are, and this is how we're always going to appear to our children, at least when they're young. We're going to appear as though we're wise and we're knowledgeable. We're going to have the form of knowledge to them and truth in the law. Next verse, Paul says, You therefore who teach another, or basically you who teach your children, he says, Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Now parenting, it's, it involves a lot of teaching. It involves a lot of preaching, but we need to make sure that we're also teaching and preaching to ourselves. Spurgeon said, he's got this great quote, he says, make sure, he says, train up a child in the way that child should go, but you need to make sure you go that way yourself. Train up your children in the way they should go, but make sure you're going that way yourself. We tell our children not to steal, that's what's in view in verse 21. We tell our children not to steal, so we want to make sure that there are no ways, even little ways, that we steal. Are you dishonest on your taxes? Are there, are there things that you take away from your workplace, even small things, and you say, oh, nobody will care? Or maybe worse, you say, nobody will notice, because then you know it's wrong, but you just hope that nobody notices it. Are there ways that you're dishonest or ways in which we steal? 
Verse 22, Paul says, you who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? First, let's deal with abhorring idols and robbing temples. This refers to dishonest activity. So again, do we punish our children for being dishonest, but are there ways in our lives in which we're dishonest? Regarding adultery, Jesus said, because that's what Paul's also discussing here, do not commit adultery. Jesus said that we commit adultery in our hearts through lusting. And so this is what I'd say if I could have the Father's attention. We generally recognize this is a struggle that's more common to men, more common to sons, although it can take place with women too. But if I'd have all the fathers just look at me, just consider this for a moment. Hopefully, you're all talking to your sons about purity. That is a responsibility as fathers that all of us have, to be talking to our sons about purity. I mean, if you just think about Proverbs, and it's a, Proverbs is a record of a father talking to his son. As you read through that book, regularly it's a father saying to his son, a father saying to his son. And so the book of Proverbs can serve this very fantastic um, purpose of revealing to fathers what we need to be talking about with our sons. Now, of all the things in the book of Proverbs, do you know what's discussed more than anything else? The immoral woman, the adulteress. And so it just reveals how important it is, or that is probably the most common topic. I mean, you've got work in Proverbs, you've got laziness, you've got all these other things, but in terms of frequency, more than anything else is this discussion of purity. And so that reveals what we as fathers need to be talking about with our sons. But here's the thing, how hypocritical would it be for us as married men if we were talking to our sons about purity, the things that they shouldn't be looking at, the things that they shouldn't be thinking about, but we don't rip our eyes away. We don't protect our hearts and minds from thoughts, protect our eyes from going places that they shouldn't. It, it convicts me because I think, you know, if I'm not honoring God in this respect, then what are the chances that he's going to honor me in the parenting? I think it's 1 Samuel 2.30 where God says, I'll honor those who honor me. What are the chances that God is going to be honoring that request of a father when he prays, when he intercedes for his children, sort of like Job did, and he's praying for his son's purity, but he's impure? It, it, make, it would be very hard for me to believe that God is actually going to hear that prayer or honor that request. Verse 23, Paul says, You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Now the Jews, they boasted about God's law, but then they dishonored God by breaking it. And so hopefully you can see the application here. We can very much be like this. We can present a very high view of God's word to our children but then we can dishonor God's word by living out a very low view of it in our personal lives. And so here's what I would ask. Do we expect our children to pray? Do we expect our children to be reading the word? If we expect our children to be praying, then they better see us pray. They better know that we're people of prayer. If we expect our children to be reading the word, they better see us reading the word. They better know that we read it on our own, and they better see us reading it with them in our, in our times of family discipleship or family worship. Do we expect our children to be committed to church and to the body of Christ, but, when, but we don't live out a high commitment to church and the body of Christ? It's always sort of tragic to me as a, as a pastor to see parents, and you can tell that they want their children to be involved and committed to the body of Christ, but then you see the number of things that just pull them away every Lord's Day. And you've got to wonder, do they really think that their children are going to live up to a higher standard than they're setting themselves? And what's the answer to that? That's probably not going to happen. That's probably not going to happen. We need to be setting that higher standard in our lives for our children to rise up to and reach. It's tragic when parents expect a child to live up to a higher standard when they're older than, that, than the standard that the parents set when those children were younger and in those very formative years. 
my wife Katie and I, she had a friend, and Katie and I had grown up together. We went to school together, and so I knew this friend too, and I knew her to be seem uh, fairly committed to Christ. I was not a Christian in school uh, growing up, and, but I, so I was kind of familiar with those individuals who, if I had to guess, okay, you know, she's probably a Christian, she's probably a Christian, he's probably a Christian. And so I knew Katie had this friend, and I would have said, okay, yeah, she, she's a Christian. You know, she seems to go to church off and talk about, talk about God. And so she got older, and she had this mother who would boast. If you look in the verse there, verse 23, you who make your boast in the law, this is what her mother did. Her mother would boast about her relationship with God, or she would boast about the word. But she, she would boast about her Christianity, but she would not live it out at home. And so the girl said to my wife, the Bible was under my mom's seat in the car. And then when she got out for church, she took it out. And then when she got in the car to leave church, she just put it right back under the seat when she went home. And now that girl, she doesn't walk with the Lord whatsoever. At worst, she's an atheist, and at best, she's an agnostic. And we have no doubt that it's the hypocrisy that she saw from her mother that played a large influence in her current, I can't say relationship with the Lord, but lack of relationship with the Lord. Additionally, that girl actually ended up not just resenting the Lord, but she ended up resenting her mother because she thought her mother was such a hypocrite. She became so frustrated with a woman who communicated to so many others that she had a strong Christian faith, but then it was not portrayed at home by her daughter who knew her best. Because there are not many things, just to be candid with you, that are going to push our children away from the Lord faster than our hypocrisy. We worry about the number of things. I mean, as homeschooling families, we want our children to have these good influences and good relationships. We worry about the other relationships that they might come into contact with or the friendships that they might make. But I'll tell you, way more dangerous than any of those friendships. I mean, you could put your child in the worst public school, and it would be more dangerous to have a parent who's a hypocrite in their Christian life. The hypocrisy of a parent who professes to have a love for Christ but does not live it out, there is nothing that will drive a child away from the Lord faster than that. J.C. Ryle said, instruction, advice, commands will profit little unless they're backed up by the pattern of your life. Your children will never believe you are serious as long as your actions contradict your words. To give children good instruction and a bad example is the same as pointing them to heaven while taking them by the hand to hell. Children are not blind. They can tell very quickly if their parents have a committed relationship to Christ. They can tell very quickly if their parents practice what they preach. They can tell very quickly if their parents have expectations of them that they don't have of themselves. Basically, you could say children can tell very quickly if their parents are hypocrites. Look at verse 24, a very fitting way to end this passage. In verse 24, Paul says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, or it could say, The name of God is blasphemed in your home. That's what Paul could say. The name of God is being blasphemed in your home because of you as it is written. And it's fitting for the passage to end with this verse because it's exactly what some of us do. This is referring to the Jews being hypocrites in their relationships with God. And as a result, it made the Gentiles blaspheme God because the Jews were supposed to be the evangelists or the witness nation for the Gentiles. But here's the thing. When parents are hypocrites in their relationships with God, it makes their children blaspheme God. Now, if we don't want our children to think we're hypocrites, and if we don't want to make God look bad to them, we need to model what we want from them. We need to discipline our children, but first, we need to make sure that we have disciplined ourselves. Let me give you a few practical examples of what this looks like. If we want our children to clean up after themselves, 
we need to clean up after ourselves. And I choose that because that looks fairly amoral compared to some of the immoral things of lying, stealing, cheating. But the reality is if there's anything that you expect of your children, even something that seems as mundane or trivial as cleaning up after yourself, and you're commanding your children to keep their room clean and your room is not clean, children notice things like that. That produces resentment in their hearts. If we want our children to be on time, we need to make sure that we're punctual. If we want our children to be servants, you need to make sure that your children see you serve. If we want our children to be joyful, we need to be joyful. If we don't want our children to get angry and raise their voices, then we need to make sure that we control ourselves and speak calmly. Tell me if you notice the irony associated with this. It's bad when you're telling your kids not to yell while you're doing what? Yelling at them for yelling. How many times do I have to tell you to stop yelling? Why do you act like this? Where do you get this from? If we want our children to treat each other and others lovingly, they need to see us treating others lovingly. How bad does it look when you criticize or discipline your children for mistreating each other, but then they see you mistreating your spouse or they see you mistreating them? We need to make sure that we practice what we preach. We need to make sure that we're not tolerating behaviors in ourselves that we do not tolerate or that we punish in our children. Because if we end up tolerating behavior in ourselves that we do not tolerate in our children, our children are going to think we're hypocrites. They're going to grow up bitter, become resentful toward us. I think we've all heard stories about how pastors' kids can turn out poorly. And of course, I take particular notice of those stories when I hear them being a pastor myself. And I don't know the exact statistics, but if there really are a higher percentage of pastor's kids who turn from the Lord, I would believe it. I would believe it. And this is why. You have these children, and they look at their father standing before the church each Sunday. I can make it very personal. I have my children who see me standing before the church. I could go even further. I have my children seeing me stand before the Christian Heritage Conference, preaching these things about what other people should do or shouldn't do, and then they don't see their father or they don't see me doing these things that I tell others to do. Or they see me telling people uh, not to do things and I do them, or I tell people to do things and I don't do them, and as a result, they could think that I'm a hypocrite. That could push them away from the Lord. So I'll just share with you something candidly here. It is definitely a healthy fear of mine. It is a healthy fear of mine. I preach the word week after week. I think my children could probably finish some of my sentences. I was at this church for a conference just last month, and I was in one of the smaller rooms, and my children happened to be sitting right up front where they were about five or six feet from me. And I was going through this message, and I actually had to tell my children to stop answering because they were answering everything before everyone else. (laughs) Because, and not, not because, you know, we have our family worship every single day, you know, for three hours and I've learned everything, but because they've heard me say a lot of these things that many times. And so I know, I recognize that they could definitely be more prone to resentment or bitterness if they don't see me live these things out. But here's what else I know. I know that I am never going to obey God's word perfectly. I know that I am never going to keep the standard, as long as I'm preaching God's word and I'm preaching it faithfully, will I ever keep the standard that I set through my preaching? No, I will not, because I will never obey God's word perfectly. So I want to tell you what I've decided to do, and I want to encourage you to do the same so that your children don't think you're a hypocrite and so they don't resent you too. And this brings us to our last lesson. Avoid hypocrisy in parenting by lesson four, telling your children you're a sinner. 
Avoid hypocrisy in parenting by lesson four, telling your children you're a sinner. So I can talk about myself, and I was glad to talk about myself first, but let's just be honest with each other for a moment. None of us are going to live up to God's word perfectly. None of us are going to live up to our own teaching perfectly. Because my suspicion is if you discipline your children for anything, if you punish them for anything, you have probably done that yourself. You have probably violated the discipline or punishment that you have extended to your children. One of the most common principles regarding Christian parenting is this, and it's fantastic. Make sure your children know they're a sinner so they know that they need a savior. Make sure your children know they're a sinner so they know they need forgiveness and they can find it through Christ. And I think that's just fantastic. That is fantastic. I agree with that completely. Here's what you don't hear as often, but you should. Make sure your children know that you know you're a sinner. Make sure your children know they're sinners, but make sure your children know that you know you're a sinner. Here's what I've tried to tell my children from the earliest possible age. I fail and I make mistakes. I am a sinner. I have weaknesses. I have struggles. Even in the time that I've been here, yesterday, last evening in the vendor hall, I had, I had been, I thought, somewhat uh, firmer than I should have been with one of my sons. And I had to kneel down and look him in the eyes and say, I'm sorry. I was actually concerned, you know, there's how many people around at this moment? Um, hundreds of people. And I thought one of my sons was raising his voice, you know, and I grabbed him by the shoulders too firmly. And uh, so kneeling, you know, five minutes later, just reflecting on it, kneeling down to ask him, forgive me for daddy being that impatient or being too concerned of what other people would think as they look on. So even my point is, even in the short time I've been here, I've had to do this. In the short time I've been here, I have to look at my children and ask for their forgiveness. Tell them that I need the forgiveness offered through Christ as much as each of you. I am a sinner, and I need a Savior as much as you need a Savior. Yes, I'm a pastor, so yes, this danger might be greater for me, but I can tell you this is also a danger for each of you. The reality is, if you're a parent and you discipline your children, which you should be doing, if you're a parent and you set any sort of standard for behavior in your home, which you should be doing, at different times, you are inevitably going to fail to live up to that standard you set. And then what's the solution? Make excuses? Shift blame? Justify yourself? This means there's a real danger for all of us as parents that we need to be aware of. That's the danger of becoming hypocrites in our children's eyes. That's the danger of having children that resent us because we do not perfectly keep the standard that we set for our children. And I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to give you the answer to the question ahead of time. The answer is yes. Okay, so don't get this wrong. Are our children going to figure out at some point in their lives that we are sinners as parents? I thought more of you would get that correct. Let me ask again. Are our children going to get older and at some point recognize that their parents are sinners? Yes. So it's not so much a question of if our children are going to learn this. The question is, how are our children going to learn this? And there's two ways. There's two ways. They can learn it when they get older, realizing it on their own, probably leading to some amount of frustration and disappointment because it seems like something we tried to keep a secret from them, possibly developing some hostility toward us because we allow them to think that we think we're perfect. We allow them to think that they're the ones with all the problems. They're the ones with all the weaknesses and failures and struggles, not us. 
Or we can be honest with our children when they're young and say what? Daddy is a sinner. Mommy is a sinner. I fail. I make mistakes. I need Christ's forgiveness, and I need your forgiveness. I need the Lord's forgiveness, but I need you to forgive me too. When you're honest with your children like this, it accomplishes some wonderful things. First, it's going to endear your children to you. It will endear your children to you. The affection in their hearts toward you will increase. Second, it makes them more comfortable sharing their own struggles with you instead of trying to hide it from you because they think that you think you're perfect. Have you ever, have you ever known someone who thought they were perfect? Have you ever felt comfortable going to them with any of your struggles? Of course not. Nobody wants to talk to someone who acts like they're perfect all the time. And it's the same in our parenting. No children are going to want to talk to any parents who always come off like they're perfect and don't do anything wrong. And so as a result, we can sort of push our children underground in terms of the safety they feel with us. They lose their comfort associated with talking with us. They'll go and they'll look for answers on the internet or from friends or from anyone else other than, and they'll try to hide things from us. Even when you answer, ask your children questions, they don't even want to lie. They want to be honest with you, but they know that you never do anything wrong, so they can't admit this to you. You're discouraging honesty in your children. You're discouraging humility in your children. You're discouraging your children from confessing their sin. And so the lesson is tell your children you're a sinner. One of the best ways to do this is simply by being a person who accepts responsibility for their actions. As parents, we all want to see our children do this. We want to see our children be open. We want to see our children be honest. We want to see them accept responsibility for their actions. But it's tragic how many parents will not do this themselves. And so when you make a mistake, let me tell you what not to do. This is what ungodly parents do. This is what spiritually immature parents do. Do not make excuses. Do not blame your kids. When you lose it and embarrass yourself by yelling and screaming in your home, don't turn around and blame your children for that. That doesn't redeem you in their eyes. Don't blame your spouse. Don't blame your work. Don't come home and be impatient or slam the door and then turn around and talk about how bad things were at work today, and that's the only reason that that happened. Don't blame your neighbors. Don't blame your friends. Instead, look your children in the eyes and say, I am very sorry for what I did. Will you please forgive me? There was no excuse for that. Will you please forgive me? I should not have talked to you like that. Will you please forgive me? I should not have treated your mother like that. Will you please forgive me? I should not have disrespected your father like that. Will you please forgive me? When you promise your children something, you're going to get them something. Or perhaps you promise you're going to take them somewhere. And then you don't fulfill that promise or that obligation. Don't make excuses about it. Just be honest with your children. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but in the privacy of your own heart, how many of us have told our children we're going to take them someplace, do something with them, get them something, and we don't do it? Don't make a bunch of excuses about it. It just makes you look bad. It does not redeem you to your children. It just trains your children to make excuses when they do something wrong. Instead, say, I know I told you I would do that. I know that I told you I would get that for you. You did not misunderstand me. This is my fault. I am very sorry. Will you please forgive me? And even ask your child, how can I make this up for you? What can I do for you instead? And hopefully it'll be something reasonable, not buy them a Ferrari, right? This is what godly parents do. This is how godly parents avoid being hypocrites in their children's eyes. Now, if you don't want to talk to your children like this, perhaps because you're too prideful or perhaps because you're too spiritually immature, then what you really need to be afraid of, and I would be doing you a disservice, I would be shortchanging you in this session not to share this with you, 
is you need to look forward to two problems with your children as they grow up. First, you need to look forward to them possibly not respecting you, possibly even resenting you. Second, they might end up being like you. They might be prideful. They might be immature. They won't say sorry. What are the chances that if you always make excuses, you always shift blame, you don't accept responsibility, that your children are going to get older and they're going to accept responsibility, accept blame, and not make excuses themselves? Very little chance of that. They will not be humble. They will blame others. And in a sense, they will be like you. They will be like they have learned from you. But if you will model, if we will model humility for our children, if we will tell them that we're sinners, if we will tell them that we need the gospel just as much as they do, we can hopefully prevent our children from being disappointed or worse, resentful toward us. We can hopefully avoid having children who think we're hypocrites. And most importantly, we can have children who grow up seeing the gospel working through their parents. Our children can grow up seeing Christ through their parents. Because what's the main motivation behind this? What, why, if we had to give one reason, do we want to prevent our children from thinking we're hypocrites? Is it because we're so concerned with them being impressed with us? Hopefully that's not the answer. Is it because we want to look so great in our children's eyes? Hopefully that's not the answer. What is the main reason? The main reason is we want our children to grow up and see Christ through us. We want them to see the gospel through us. We want our children to see the way the gospel has worked in our hearts and lives. We do not want to put a stumbling block between them and Christ. What we really want is we want them to come to recognize Christ and the gospel through us. With that, I hope I've left some time here for questions. Questions. I was encouraged to leave some time for questions, which I can take now. No questions? Okay, well, I'll share a story with you then. I've always got lots of stories, and this is a new audience. I've shared the same story too many times at Christian Heritage or at my, at my own church. There was an evening where I, there's sort of an ongoing joke in our home, and unfortunately it's not really that much of a joke, and the joke is that daddy's jokes are bad. Daddy's jokes are not funny, and there's a lot of truth in that. Um, but I don't really mind when my jokes aren't funny. That's not really... That's not really the problem. The problem is when I attempt a joke, but it actually hurts one of my children's feelings. And that's happened a few times. And so one evening, when I thought it was going to be kind of funny with one of my children, I made a joke. And have you ever said something, and then about like, you know, I don't even know how much I could break down a second, like a half a second, quarter second, eighth of a second, that it's been out of your mouth. You're already regretting it. And so that's what happened. The joke came out, and it was out. And before I know it, one of my children just leaves the room rushes out of the room crying. And, me, and I just was thinking, God, I wish I could pull those words back, you know, put them in my mouth and undo them, but I couldn't. And so my, my child, my son, is in his room, and he lays down in his bed, and he was just sobbing because I had said something that was so hurtful to him, and I think my wife was probably just like this. You know, what were you thinking? Is that about what it was like? Really? Yeah, there it is. Okay, that look. I got that look again. So there's just one response there's only one correct response at that moment. And that response is to go into my son's room and to kneel down beside his bed and explain to him why I said that, explain to him what I meant, explain how I wanted him to take it. 
No, the only correct response at that moment is, will you please forgive him? I actually got in my son's bed with him, and and he was sobbing. I kind of had my arms wrapped around him. And we were sitting there, and I said, you know, Daddy's so foolish sometimes in the things that he says. And I feel terrible. I wish I got better. I wish I grew in this area. I wish that I was improving, and I'm, and I'm sorry that I'm not, and that this, this happens. And, you know, we lay there so long, my son finally said to me, he goes, man, you're, you're treating me like I'm in a hospital dying or something. You know, you can get up out of the bed. I'm okay. I'm okay, you know. But just I think I probably ended up sort of feeling worse about it later. But if that's one thing that I could leave you with is just that if we, we all, we're sharing the gospel with our children, hopefully. We're teaching them Bible studies. We're telling them God's word. And what would be the very worst thing is if we were actually the obstacle to them embracing it, our pride or our selfishness. And so what we want is when we sin, it's actually, it's, it's humbling, it's embarrassing because we're the parents and we're expected to set the better example. But I want to encourage you, every single time you fail in your parenting, let me tell you what that really is. Every failure is a tremendous opportunity for humility. Every failure is a tremendous opportunity for you to be humble to your child, to go to him or her and ask him or her for forgiveness and to share with your child how you also are a sinner who needs the same forgiveness that they need. Amen? All right, any questions now? Okay. Oh, yes, ma'am. Good. Nice and loudly. Is your question, are you asking if there's something wrong or you're wishing your child did not desire independence? Okay, man. Okay. Let me be clear about something. There's a world of difference between independence and rebellion. And I would not describe, I would not use the word independence. For that, I would use the word rebellion. When you ask your child to do something, and as you said, there's pushback or resistance to that, that's not independence. That's rebellion, because you've given your child an instruction that that child doesn't want to obey. Now, I'll just tell you something briefly. Before I was a pastor, I used to be a a school teacher, and they had a saying that you can never go back to the first day of school. And what they meant was when it's October, November, and you're looking out of your classroom and you're regretting how poorly your students have behaved, and this is not a commentary on public schools or school teaching. It's just what I used to do before, before I became a pastor. And the idea is once you've hit October and November and you regret how your students look, you can't go back to August and do that first day of school and retrain them. Do you see the application that this has for parenting? And so I'll tell you something that's very difficult as a pastor. I get parents and they come to me and they have questions and they say, well, my child's doing this or my child's doing that and what can I do about it now? And I'll just be honest. There might not be that much. You can't go back. You can pray, but you already know that. 
but you can't go back to August. You can't take them back to when they're two, three, four, or five years old during those very formative years. So you've just got to cry out, this is what you can do. You can continue modeling, doing the things that I talked about, modeling godliness, modeling having those fam times of family worship and Bible study. But the reality is if you're seeing a sort of rebelliousness in your children when they're teenagers, what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to cry out to God for mercy. And you're need to, going to need to confess your inadequacies and pray that God's grace will be sufficient to reach out and save that child and capture that child's heart in the areas where you've potentially failed as a parent. Was there another question that might be kind of quick? Yes, sir. Ask, are you talking about asking a son? Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I think that's fantastic. Briefly, uh, everyone in my family knows I have a terrible voice. My son, I have invited to start leading the singing during our family worship, which I think probably blesses everyone. Uh, but he's only, <laughs> he's only seven. And so in those opportunities I have to give my son leadership, there have been times where I, I took a trip last month and I was gone a few nights and I looked at my son Ricky and I said, now Ricky, you're, you're the leader in the home in my absence. You're the firstborn son that God has given me. And so we do we definitely want to be training up our boys to be men. We want to be training up our girls. I'm te that's my fourth workshop tomorrow. Basically the threats to biblical manhood and womanhood. And one of the best ways to, to raise our sons or daughters to be godly men or godly women is to be giving them those responsibilities when they're young and inviting them alongside of us in that leadership of the home. I think that's a fantastic, somewhat of a question that you led me into, which I appreciate the opportunity to share with everyone. Well said. Is that all my time, Mr. Bubba? Okay. God bless you guys. Thank you for the privilege of sharing with you.